Everybody happy this morning? Well, we'll see what we can do about that. <laughs> Glory to God. Just kidding. Hallelujah. Let's let's go to the Word this morning. We're going to look at Romans eight twenty nine through thirty in the New King James Version. Paul's writing here. He says, "For whom he foreknew, he also predestined." to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask your Holy Spirit to open our eyes today. Make your word come alive in us. And help us to see what changes we need to make in our lives. And we purpose to be doers of the word today and not hearers only. Thank you for helping us and for transforming us into the image of your son. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, back in the 1950s, Doris Day sang a tune that became her signature song. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm just going to read it to you. The chorus went like this. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera, what will be, will be. Interestingly enough, that was introduced in an Alfred Hitchcock movie, which you wouldn't, if you've heard the song, it doesn't seem to fit. But at any rate, that sounds like what some Christians today say. When they say God is sovereign, God is in control. Whatever he wants to do, he will do. And whatever happens in my life is his will for me. It was meant to be. I realize I'm wading into some shark-infested waters this morning by talking about these things. But when Pastor David recently alluded to some of the pitfalls of Calvinist theology in some of his recent sermons, it sort of whetted my appetite to explore it some more. So hold off throwing any stones quite yet. I read once that one of the difficulties experienced in war is countermanded orders. So one soldier gets an order from an officer to do something, only to have another officer countermand the original order with a new order. You can see how this could lead to confusion and even possible disaster on the battlefield. It's no different when religious theology creeps into the church and countermands what the Lord has told us in his word. So there's a theology that's been floating around the church actually for centuries and periodically gets repackaged for a new generation. And this theology teaches that nothing happens without God willing it to happen and without God willing willing it to happen in the way that it happens. This belief system may give us a temporary relief from confusion and condemnation when something bad happens in life that we just can't explain. For instance, I don't know why Aunt Betty died at the age of 40. It must have been the will of the Lord. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But in the long term, this belief slanders God, kills our faith, and leads to passiveness in our Christian walk. 
Embedded in this belief system are two so-called pillars of theology. God is sovereign and God is in control. What does that actually mean? The word sovereign is not found in Strong's Concordance of the King James Bible. Of course, neither are the words Bible or Trinity. I think we can all agree those are valid subjects. The word sovereign does show up in some of the modern Bible translations, primarily in the Old Testament. But it's translated from the same Hebrew word every time, Adonai, which is translated in the King James as Lord God. The dictionary defines sovereignty as supreme authority or rule. Synonyms associated with the word are dominion, primacy, preeminence, reign, kingship, jurisdiction, and power. None of these words indicate that the sovereign controls every aspect of your life. For example, if you had lived as a normal citizen under the harshest sovereign in the Roman Empire, which many say was Emperor Nero, you'd still make most of the basic decisions for your daily life. In other words, the emperor wasn't there to tell you what to eat, when to bathe, what color robe and sandals to wear that day. Yet religion has coined the phrase that nothing can happen to us, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father, implying that everything that happens to us in life must be His will, and that there is a purpose for that happening. One noted theologian from this camp wrote a, wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Some of the chapters are, we waste our cancer if we believe it was not designed for us by God. We waste our cancer if we believe it is a curse and not a gift. We waste our cancer if we refuse to think about death. This same author wrote, I believe in God's ability to heal by miracle and by medicine. I believe it is right and good to pray for both kinds of healing. But he said, healing is not God's plan for everyone in this life. The preface of this book states that the author wrote it on the eve of his own surgery for prostate cancer. My first thought was, if he believes this cancer is a gift from God, why is he trying to get rid of it? This author is a kind, learned man. I've listened to him. And he's the one that's writing this stuff. He has a doctorate in theology which means his life work is to pour over the scriptures. But even the religious leaders Jesus encountered got things wrong, didn't they? He told them in Matthew 22:29, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. If we allow this mindset of God is in control to counterman the promises of God, we'll lose the fight of faith. Integral to winning that fight is knowing what to resist and what to accept, knowing what's from God and what's not from him. The only way we know these things is by his word and by his spirit. So let's take a look at some scriptures from the word of God regarding healing for our physical body. Is sickness and disease a blessing or a curse? Well, Moses said in Deuteronomy 28, and we're going to look at verse 15 and then verses 59 through 61. He said, but it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, 
to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. No level-headed person could read this and conclude that sickness is a blessing from the Lord. It is plainly described as a curse, and it is clear that the curse could be avoided through obedience to the commands of the Lord. A little side note here. Some people stumble over the fact that the Lord says he will put these diseases upon them. Some Bible scholars say that the verb tense implies the idea of permitting the diseases to come upon them. Also, time and again throughout the Bible, it will attribute someone doing something when in fact they simply sanction others to do it. An example of this is found in 1 Kings 6, 14 through 16. So Solomon built the temple and finished it. And he built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards from the floor of the temple to the ceiling. He paneled the inside with wood and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. Then he built the 20 cubic room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling with cedar boards. He built it inside as the inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. Did Solomon do that all by himself? Some of you guys are builders. You know what's involved in something like that. No, he didn't do that by himself. He was king. He directed others to do it, but he is given credit for carrying it out. Okay, I just wanted you to see that. You'll, you'll, you'll see that kind of language throughout the Old Testament quite a bit. Remember, Jesus said in John 10 that it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. If anything is stealing, killing, and destroying, the enemy has somehow been given an open door either through our own making or the results of living on a fallen planet where there are nearly 8 billion people with wills of their own who often do stupid things. Can you say amen? Going back to Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 30:19, Moses concludes by saying, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Notice that Moses didn't say, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. But remember, God is sovereign. So you just never know if he'll keep you healthy or make you sick. Just do the best you can anyway. No, he said, you choose. But remember, that was the old covenant. We have a new covenant based on better promises. In Galatians 3, 13 through 14, we're told, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And I also want to look at Romans 8, 1 through 4. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us, then we are no longer subject to the curse, which includes sickness. If sickness is a gift from God, as our dear brother wrote in his book about cancer, then how do we square Acts 10.39? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This verse says healing is good. This verse says sickness comes from our enemy, the devil. James 4.7 says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This verse makes it clear that some things are from God and some from the devil. We must submit to the things that are from God and resist the things that are from the devil. I conclude from this that I should submit to healing and resist sickness. That word resist means actively fight against. So saying, whatever will be, will be is not actively fighting against the devil. Amen? We might say, well, I know someone who was believing God for healing, and he died. Well, does that change or negate the scriptures we just read? No, it does not. Lillian B. Yeomans was a medical doctor who was miraculously delivered from drug addiction. She almost didn't receive her healing because of the same line of reasoning. Here's what she wrote. When I was on the very brink of the grave, the holiest person I ever met nearly rolled me in by the fact that she was so ailing and frail. The enemy would ask me, how can you hope to be healed when Mrs. So-and-so always has one foot in the grave and the other on the brink? You know you are not holy like she is and have no hope of ever being her equal spiritually. Explain her condition before you expect restoration to health. Dr. Yeomans continued, how much precious time I wasted trying to explain Mrs. So-and-so's case. One day I got so desperate, I said, I don't care if every saint on earth dies of disease. The Word of God promises me healing, and I take it, and I have it. Hallelujah. That's the attitude we need to have to win this fight of faith. Amen. Years later, Dr. Yeomans ran into Mrs. So-and-so in a department store, and the woman had been gloriously healed and even had a new head of beautiful gray hair. Dr. Yeomans wrote, While that dear woman was going on from faith to faith until she was able to pray the hair back on her head, even in an old age, I, at the enemy's behest, was beholding lying vanities and forsaking my own mercy until it nearly cost me my life. We need to guard ourselves about letting other people's lack of results affect our faith. You don't know what's going on between that person and God. I don't know what's going on between you and God. 
And you don't know what's going on between me and God. Our faith has to be in the Word of God, not what's happening in someone else's life. Keith Moore told a story about a young man he'd been praying for who was having one problem after the next. He found himself on his knees one day praying once again for this man who had experienced yet another calamity in his life. In the middle of praying, Keith heard the Lord speak to his heart quite forcefully. The Lord said, I've told that man to do two things. Get a job and keep it. Find a church and be faithful. Until he does those things, nothing will change. Those in the God is sovereign, God is in control camp would explain that young man's situation as the will of God for his life. It was meant to be. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. Amen. That's why I say we need the Word of God and the Spirit of God as we walk out this life. If the sovereignty of God doctrine was true and God was really in control of everything, it would be impossible for anything to happen that goes against his will. Yet Scripture contains one very important example of God's will being thwarted. In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Father's will is that no one would die and go to hell. Yet Jesus, Jesus said that many will ultimately find destruction. In Matthew seven thirteen through 14, we read, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. The fact is, God leaves a lot of things, not all things, but a lot of things, up to us. In Deuteronomy 11:26 through 28, Moses said, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. The word if means this promise is conditional. If God is in complete control of everything, there cannot be an if. The if signifies it's not all up to him. Since God gives us a choice, we have a responsibility regarding the outcome. We can't leave up to God what he's left up to us. Amen? In Matthew 6, 9 through 10, Jesus said to his disciples, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If God's sovereignty means that God is doing all that he wills, then why would Jesus tell us to pray that God's will would be done? In fact, why pray at all if God's going to do what he wants to do anyway? It would do us good to look at Psalm 8, 4 through 6. In this verse, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation, and I'll explain why in a minute. We need to look at this to remind ourselves of the original order of things that God put in place. The psalmist wrote, What are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? 
Yet you made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The King James Version translates verse 5 as, You made them a little lower than the angels. But that same word that the translators put in as angels, 2,500 other times in the King James Version, they translated as God. It's just almost like they got to this verse and they just froze. Can this really mean this? No, we better water this down and say angels. But it doesn't mean angels. It means he made us a little lower than himself. Hallelujah. And that accurately describes our position in Christ. We have been put in charge of everything that God has made, and he has put all things under our authority. Unfortunately, the church tends to be inept sometimes in exercising this authority. And part of that ineptness stems from Christians waiting for God to do what he has already authorized them to do themselves. When we fail to exercise our authority, Satan is only too happy to take over. One of the consequences of the extreme sovereignty of God theology is that it creates distance between Father God and his children. If you believe that God is the author of pain, suffering, and destruction, as well as the good things in life, it becomes almost impossible to have an intimate relationship with him. How can you trust someone who might send disease or disaster your way at any time just to teach you a lesson? You'll always have your guard up because there is an ever-present tension and anxiety hanging over the relationship. Some in the extreme sovereignty of God camp might argue Romans 8.28, saying, Oh, you've got it all wrong, Brother Dave. Through our pain and suffering, God is working all these things for good. Really? What about people who have been hit with tragedies and never recovered from them, spiritually, emotionally, or physically? Frankly, I think that scripture has been cherry-picked out of context probably more than any other verse from the Bible. I want to look at the verses preceding this, starting with Romans 8, 22, 28. And I'm not saying I have the full import of what's being said here, but I think there's some things being conveyed that we haven't talked about or looked at. We've just looked at that one little phrase. Starting with verse 22, it says, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So we see two things here. We see creation groaning, and we see the believer groaning, waiting with perseverance for their full redemption while still living in a fallen world. In verse 26, we see the Holy Spirit groaning in intercession through and for believers according to the will of God, which is part of God's provision for us to live in victory in this fallen world. So let's look at 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. 
For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I believe this intercession refers to our sighs, groans, cries, and other expressions of our spirit, including tongues, by the Holy Spirit in prayer, which are made into effectual intercession before the throne of God. Once that intercession has taken place, then we have the following assurance. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This makes clear that all things work together for good to a select group. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That purpose being that we are reconciled to God through his Son. In other words, this select group is the saints, the Holy Spirit interceded for through us. I want to close by looking at the text I read at the beginning of this message, Romans 8, 29 through 30. And this is one of the capstone scriptures used by those who embrace that God is in control, God is sovereign theology. In verse 29, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God is all-knowing. Because he lives in eternity, outside of time, God sees the end from the beginning. I've read and heard various accounts of people who have visited heaven. And they said they saw things about their life on earth that hadn't happened yet, as though they had already occurred. There was no sense of linear time as we know it here. My wife and I enjoyed watching a parade a few summers ago in our hometown of Spencerport, New York. From our vantage point, we could only see a small segment of the parade at any one time. If we'd had a drone, we could have had a bird's eye view of the parade and seen all the marching bands and fire trucks snaking down Main Street from beginning to the end all at once. We could have told people standing next to us who the last marching band would be, how many were in the band, what instruments they were playing, and the color of their uniforms. And they could have rightly said, we foreknew the last marching band in the parade. That's what this verse is saying about God. He knew in advance who would receive him. But knowing something will happen is not the same as causing it to happen. Just because I could describe every detail about the last marching band in the parade doesn't mean I caused that band to be where it was. This verse is saying that God knew in advance who would choose Jesus. And once they did, he then predestined them to be conformed to the likeness of his son. This is a whole lot different than saying God arbitrarily destined some people to heaven and others to hell, which is how the extreme sovereignty of God theology interprets this verse. Every day, in a thousand little ways, we make choices that either add life to a situation or bring death to it. 
The life choices bring blessing. Death choices bring cursing into our lives and the lives of those around us. What we're doing with those choices is putting the universal law of sowing and reaping into action. These choices are ours alone. Paul said, we know in part. Sometimes things happen in life that we can't explain. I believe more times than not, the Holy Spirit has been leading us, warning us, counseling us, and we ignored him. Let's believe God to do better in walking in the Spirit. Amen. But rather than embrace the doctrine that says God is sovereign, God is in control, to try to explain things we don't understand, how about simply saying, I don't know why that happened. But what I do know is God is good. His gifts to me are good. He's my healer. He's my provider. He's my counselor. He's leading me down the best pathway for my life. And his plans for me are for good and not evil. He will be with me in times of trouble, even those I don't understand. But he will also deliver me. Amen. That attitude will ignite your faith. And it will keep you in the embrace of the Father God who loves you so very much. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your goodness in our lives. Help us to know what's from you and what's not from you. What's true and what's not true. Help us to know what to resist and what to accept and embrace. Help us to grow in our ability to be accurately led by your Holy Spirit. And give us the grace to will and to do your good pleasure. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Amen.